safe. We're a club that produces more national championships, college scholarship athletes, national team players, and pros than any other. It's a club that helps make dreams come true, and we've been doing it for over 40 years. Hello and welcome to another Inside Surf Soccer Podcast with me, Louis Hunt. We wanted to take this opportunity to thank all of our listeners, members, the players, coaches, parents who have contributed to the first 12 episodes of our podcast series. This week, we recap season one with our best of the best bits from guests, including our alumni players, current directors of coaching, US youth national team and women national team coaches, sports site guru Dan Abrahams, development coaches Paul Bright of the Coaching Manual and Austin McPhee of AM Sports, plus former US national team legends Landon Donovan and Shannon Box. We kick things off with our guests talking about soccer development. But my development, I mean, my coach was a, was a dad, but he really focused a lot on our technical ability, working with both feet. So I grew up not being afraid to use my left foot or my right foot. Um, I mean, I remember training sessions where it was hit the crossbar and we would do that for, you know, the whole session, but it was with your left foot. And I thought that's great because I see it now is when I'm coaching now is people try to avoid that because it's something that their kids are not very good at. So one thing that I always think was so important with, to me is that I worked on the things that I wasn't very good at for a long time until I was, I mastered those. And um, that became kind of my whole career. I was out playing by myself or with my friends in the street all the time. And so we have to find a better balance, I think, of giving kids some structure so that they can play and learn from good coaches who know what they're doing, but then also letting them be unstructured and letting them just play. I had, you know, I said, I say this to people, I've, until I was 16 years old, I never practiced formally more than twice a week. So think about that for a second. Until I was 16, I never had more than two training sessions a week with a club team. And I ended up being one of the most successful players in our history scored more goals than anybody else in our history right so if you think about why that is um i was outside playing all the time and there are things you learn in a 4v4 with your buddies in the neighborhood that you're not going to learn with 20 players in an organized practice now it works both ways right you need both and potentially if i had had a little more structure actually it would have helped me more a little bit earlier but We've got to find a way to balance that in the right way so that kids are still being kids, getting to experience the game naturally versus being structured too much. During those those golden years, as you call it, it's practice, 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 and more practice. And I, you know, I think even for the best players that I've, I've worked with, their obsession with the ball was insurmountable. They were attached to the ball. It was always at their feet. And I think that that's... That's the piece here that I think, you know, you want to see kids really fall in love with the game and, and they'll stay in it for 20, 30, 40, maybe even longer and go into coaching or administration. Um, but yeah, fall in love with the game would be my bit and practice, practice, practice. You, we've all seen players that we've seen at 14 who you think is a monster athlete or he's a big, powerful, strong kid, but has missed out on that those foundation years. And, and conversely, you see players who are super technical 
because they've had that drummed into them at young ages and um, they've refined those, those skill sets that are essential to being a, a great soccer player. And they're the kids predominantly that, that make progress the fastest. So, yeah, you cannot underestimate it. I've been a massive um, advocate for juggling. I've been a massive advocate for mastering the push pass and, and the inside of your foot receive and basically being um, a, a genius with the ball when you're a young kid, um, as well as being able to, to understand the, the concept of passing and moving to receive. And so if you encapsulate those basics into um, the, the most basic form, if you will, those are the things that kids need to, to cement and secure when they're in, in the ages that we're working with in zone one. No, I just think, um, you know, the key word being foundation, um, I know it might sound a bit cheesy, but um, the bigger the foundation you build with these kids, the taller that the, uh, the pyramid can be. Um, so it's, it's, it's really important. Um, Billy touched on us talking about the basic brilliance. I know that some of the things that we do um, might sound basic in zone one, but the more brilliant you can be at those basic things, the bigger your foundation is and the, and the higher we think you can climb as a player. Um, so, so massively important. I was obsessed with juggling when I was younger, like obsessed with juggling. Me I would too. do it all the time. And I love ice cream. And my mom told me if I could get to 250 juggles that she would buy this like certain ice cream that I like. So I literally would go in my garage for like hours and hours and hours of the day and just juggle. And I finally got to 250 and I don't know how old I was. I was pretty young. Um, but I just like loved juggling all my life. And so I mean, I could probably do, I haven't really been able to, like, count how many juggles I could do, but I could probably do around, like, in somewhere in, like, a thousand range. I was just going to say, like, I was I was going to say, I guess, like, kind of, like, what Maddie touched on. Um, always just, like, having fun, but, you know, just, like, being curious, you know, and just, like, if you want to know, like, how many juggles you can do, like, Bianca. And um, just, like, pushing yourself in different ways. Like, if you have really – if you have a lot of fun, like, oh, like, doing this type of shot or um, hitting the ball, you know, just kind of, like, constantly doing that. And um, I guess just, like, remembering, like, th this is supposed to be fun, but also, um, you know, like, falling in love with the process of repetition and um, knowing that, like, even though – things won't, won't be super, I guess, like, super successful in the very beginning is, is, like, anything in life. Um, if you keep just, like, if you just keep focusing on that and if you just keep um, working on it and, um, you know, just, like, each day coming in with the mentality of, of wanting to get better and um, I guess just like being competitive about that, but also remembering that you're supposed to be having fun and it shouldn't be like a stressful thing. Um, I think any player will, will end up being successful out of that. For me, when I was growing up, I played up a year or two years all the time. And anytime I could jump in with my brother Brian and Justin's team I'd always be begging the coaches to let me train with all the players and to always be training as much as I can and I always want to do extra stuff and stay afterwards and do finishing and do whatever and I think that's something is for all the younger guys out there just you know they don't have to deal with any type of 
body aches or soreness or anything like that. They can go 100 miles an hour the whole time. So I would say for them, it's just to play as much as possible. And I think that's the most important thing when you're young is to always be around it and to always be playing out in the field. Yeah, and I'll add to that. I mean, I think this goes for at any age when you're playing soccer, just any sport, you know, doing it outside of practice as much as you possibly can. Uh, I know right now it's probably interesting because you don't have games to play on weekends. You don't have practices during the week. But, you know, if I'm looking at this as an outsider, this is probably one of the best times to grow as a soccer player mm -hmm. because a lot, of, a lot of kids, you know, aren't going to be putting in the work. A lot of the other teams aren't going to be putting in the work what you do outside of, of when people are watching is, is definitely uh, one, the most important part, I would say. Here's some of our guests talking about the mental challenges of playing soccer and advice they have on building mental toughness. Making a mistake, like I've done things like uh, even scoring like own goals on accident and you just got to focus on the next play and think about what you can do better the next one to just really get over those mistakes. I try to zone in as much as I can. And it may be harder for some other players than others, but I think as you get older, you kind of get used to only listening to certain people on the field. So that would be like your teammates, the ref, your coaches. You kind of focus on them more than the stands or even like the other team as well. So you kind of just try to focus on what's most important at that time. So I'm not going to really focus on people in the stadium cheering when I'm dribbling down because that's going to make me freak out more, right? So it's just focusing in on what's happening at that time rather than external things going on in the background. I think the kids that show the initiative throughout their career from 12, 10, whatever it might be, keep self-regulated throughout. When they get to sort of the ages that we get to work with them at, that's something that can stand out because their mentality is that they, they're willing to take the initiative to step into whatever the what next is. I think that's one way. And I think that the, the downside that Trey said before about the competitive nature of this country, sometimes development on a technical, tactical side is missed. But the upside of it is that the competitive nature of this country means you're always striving for something. And that grit and determination is often what you see from the kids that when they get to, you know, the U20s, they've been picked for their state, they've been picked for their region, they've gained a college scholarship, they're always having to compete and get someone out like, if I want to get a college scholarship at a D1 school, I've got to compete with thousands of other kids to be able to do that. So the, the kids that end up not even necessarily getting where they was their number one choice in that program but that the competitive nature of always striving to get something i think is an innate thing that this country has that not many countries in the world have actually yeah and i think that the psych social piece louis is is the piece now that keeps the player in the game for longer because there's so much adversity there's so many things that will go wrong for them whether it's injury whether it's loss of form whether it's not being selected by the school that they wanted to, whether it's not being selected for a youth national team, whether it's not making the, the A team, the flight one team, whatever the, the expression is for the top side in their club. There's so much adversity. But what you find is, is the kids that have this just extreme focus, this extreme will to win and want, they end up finding their way onto those teams because they just don't let adversity get in their way. And 
you know, and it's so much of our, our, you know, when you go through our system, there's so much pressure and it's how the players can cope with that pressure. Because I would say to our kids, look, there's no secret sauce when you get to the women. All it is is just the same tools you're learning now. They just get reinforced and get stronger. And ultimately, that's able that keeps you in, in a position to be able to stay in this system for as long as possible. Because, you know, it is very, very tough um, to, to stay in our youth national team and our women's national team programme. And really, in many respects, the game face is this individual zone of optimal functioning. You won't hear me say that again. It's a game face. A game face is the personality you want to be on the pitch. It's the attitude you want to display nonstop for 95 minutes. It's your optimal mental state. It optimizes your physical state. Um, It's based on you at your best. It's based on who you want to be on the pitch. It's based on your dream game. And that's what I ask players to be able to create a game face. Tell me about your best. And maybe the players who are listening in now can start to picture, because that's kind of how we function as human beings. We, we picture things. So picture you at your best. Picture your dream game, playing your dream game. You might pick a, a best game. You might imagine a dream game. Think about who you want to be on the pitch. Think about who your favourite player is. And I get players to think about that. And then I get them to strip it back to a couple of key words, a couple of action-based words. And I'll give you a true example here, a real-life example. One of my clients, Louis, played in the Champions League final, the biggest game in the world, arguably, um, on the 1st of June 2019, so last year. If you remember that, it was Spurs against Liverpool. I'm not going to say which side he played for. But he went into that game, and he had a game face of relentless and dominant. So when I first sat down with him and I asked him about him at his best, I asked him about who he wanted to be on the pitch, I asked him to imagine his dream game. He thought about it, and we had a bit of a discussion about it, but he came up with these two words, relentless and dominant. He said, Dan, I'm relentless and dominant. If you were to watch me, if you were sitting in the stadium watching me, I was at my best, I'd be relentless and dominant. Relentless with every run, every movement, every action. Dominant in the air, dominant in the challenge. I'd look dominant. I'd have dominant body language. I'd portray myself dominant. My presence would be dominating. So relentless and dominant. And he went into this Champions League game, the biggest game in the world, the biggest game in the world. And every single day, he just focused on, when I play, I'm going to be relentless and dominant. When I play in this Champions League final, I'm going to be relentless and dominant. I'm going to be that nonstop. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What does that look like? What does that feel like? So he rehearsed it in his mind. And when he went onto the pitch, he committed to being relentless and dominant. If he gave the ball away, relentless and dominant. If he missed a great chance to score, relentless and dominant. If his cross went into the rose head, relentless and dominant. If his team went a goal behind, relentless and dominant. That's what he committed to because it was meaningful to him. And so that's what I call a game face. And you can have loads of fun with that game face. So I've got to play another player who, again, is, a, is, a, is, a, is actually a player who plays for England in the international team, and he plays for a very good domestic team in Premier League. And his game face is confident, relentless lion. Confident, relentless lion. Confident, relentless lion, because he picked confident and relentless, and I asked him what animal that reminded him of, uh, him of and he said a lion. I'm like a lion. 
I'm strong, I'm big, I'm bold, I'm brave, I'm the king out there, I'm like a lion, confident, relentless lion. And here's another example. You see, I'm full of examples here, Louis. Um, here's another example. Um, and this one, this person I know you'll recognize. Um, she's a member of the U.S. Women's National Squad. And she allows me to talk about the work I've done because she's really enjoyed it. And not to say other clients haven't enjoyed it, but I do have confidentiality uh, agreements with them. But uh, she's, she's come out of that and she said, no, players need to know this, young players especially. So that, it's Ali Long who plays for the U.S. women's national team. And when I st first started working with Ali, she was, she was desperate. It was, it was December 2015. She got in contact with me and she said, Dan, I want to play in the Olympics in Rio. Dan, I want to go to the World Cup with the U.S. women's team. I've been trying all these years. I always get a little bit nervous when I'm trialing. I get a bit nervous in front of Jill Ellis. I'm not myself. I'm not at my best. And I really want to impress her. I've got to impress her. I've got to impress her. I've got to impress her. And I was like, Ali, stop. And we started to make a game face. So she thought about her best game. She thought about her dream game. And she thought about who she wanted to be on the pitch. And she came up with she came up with a few words, but the two words she loved were dominant and focused. Again, that word dominant, dominant, focused, dominant, focused, dominant, focused. And she related it to the players because you can you don't just have to have two key words. You don't just have to have an animal. You can also have a model player. She likes Sergio Busquets the uh, Barcelona player uh, who plays a holding midfield role. So her game face became dominant focus Busquets, dominant focus Busquets. So rather than being worried about impressing Jill Ellis, rather than being nervous when she went for a trial, rather than being overly obsessed to go to the Olympics and want to play in the World Cup, it was my job on the pitch is to be dominant focus Busquets. I'm going to be dominant focus Busquets nonstop. I'm going to be that in the trials, no matter what happens to me. No matter what happens, dominant focus Busquets. You're a goalkeeping coach, Louis. I've got a goalkeeper who plays for a team you very much like, who is BC Neuer. In fact, now he's BC Edison. Brave, confident Edison. Brave, confident Edison. Brave, confident Edison is in the goalkeeper for Manchester City. So you can have some fun. And now this is a game face. We were so fortunate to have guests on the show who have experienced the elite level of the game. Here's some on the best advice from the legends of the game. I think one, it was always, there was always a prove yourself, you know, and I don't think it was to prove to somebody else. It was always to prove to myself that I could do it and I could be the best that I could be. Um, I never compared myself to other people. It was more just about me and, and how I performed. Um, I think whatever I had that led me into college and then even after I think a lot of it was just a determination and a perseverance that I just I think I always have had um but I know that I would never have made the national team if I didn't have that because I didn't make the national team till I was 26 years old you know and even after college like I was like I still want to play and the only place to play was Germany and then it was like okay I still want to play there's a league. I, I was not getting picked on the national team, but there was something that still said, like, I'm going to continue to go for this. I'm going to continue to get better as a player until I get that opportunity. And, you know, I think that even started back in high school, back in those days when I was running those fitness with that packet. Um, it was just always in that mentality to, to, to want to be successful and to persevere through a lot of hard things. I, I, you know, I'm not as talented as 
uh, Christian Pulisic is. I was, I wasn't, you know, naturally, I didn't have as much, uh, not naturally, I didn't have as much early practice and guidance as he had, right? And the reason why he's making it to the level he has is because he, he has that, but he also has some grit to him. He has some bite to him. And that's what's helped him get there. He knows how to solve problems, right? He's clearly been guided the right way. Uh, the teams in the early 2000s, even through the mid 2000s, uh, had a lot of that. Like Clint Dempsey, Clint Dempsey wasn't, you know, tactically taught how to play soccer. He just knew how to score goals when it mattered, right? And he knew where to be. And that was just from playing thousands of hours by himself and with his friends to figure out how that worked. And again, I feel like I'm a broken record here, but if we're too structured, if we're giving our kids too much information at a young age, we're not allowing them to solve those kind of problems. I was just talking to someone about the 2002 World Cup. So if people don't know a lot about that, go back and just watch the US games in the World Cup or watch the highlights. Um, that was a group of men who competed, were tactically pretty good, um, were very fit, but knew how to solve problems in a soccer game and make decisions that mattered. And we ended up getting to the quarterfinals and we, we took Germany in the quarterfinals to the brink and you know, on, on most days we would have won that game. So those players weren't more talented than Weston McKinney or Tyler Adams or Christian Pulisic or Timothy Weah or Josh Sargent, not, not even close, but there was something about that kind of player that uh, allowed us to be successful. And so we need to, we need to marry the two, right? We got to be able to mix the two. We have good coaches now who can help players get better. Um, are we doing the other part in allowing them to grow mentally and giving them that grit and toughness they need? And then also the ability to, to make decisions on their own and solve problems. Someone said to me today, actually, I've never heard it before. And I thought it was a really good statement. It's winning's always going to matter, right? Everyone walks on a field, on a pitch and wants to win. But what's the consequence of winning? And I think that's a really interesting way to put it is, is the consequence of winning in that you learn from it? Or if you didn't win, do you learn from it? And then as they get older, the consequences might become more um, result-orientated as, you know, we're, we're trying to qualify for World Cup. We're in World Cup. You go pro. Then there's a true consequence to that. But at a younger age, how do you learn and develop off the consequence? Is it you only learn when you win or is it you only learn when you lose? It should be both. And I think sometimes the emotion of the coach and the, the parent at times overrides that and they come away so disappointed when they lose that they can't evaluate and then help the player to develop. And then when they win, everything's fine so that, and they're way happy and then they still don't help develop the kids. So I think that consequence of winning is, is a balance. I never heard it said like that and I just thought it was really, uh, it just stuck with me. Well, you look and go, winning has one outcome. It's the result. It's one outcome. It's the win. Whereas development has so many more outcomes from it. And winning is part of that, those outcomes. But it's also the ability to get better, to become, to, to live up to your true potential or reach the potential that your peers, parents, coaches believe that you can reach. So I think that it's, it's just striking a balance between the two. But for the youngest ages, you know, I don't remember... You speak to most players now when they're 18, 90, they don't remember a single result from under 12. 
Yet at that time, maybe it was the most important game for the adults in the room. But kid, it wasn't. It was, oh, I remember when I first learned how to bend the ball. And, oh, my God, I remember this goal where I took on three players and did this amazing turn or dribble. They remember those moments more. So it's how, as adults, we can make sure that the winning doesn't become so important for us because players want to win. Don't forget about the goalkeepers. Here's some thoughts about soccer's most unique position. I think for me, when you talk about younger goalkeepers, I think first and foremost, it's the environment that you, you put them in. And, and from that, I would, I would propose that you should be thinking about it being challenging. But then obviously the element of fun is, has to be paramount to what you're doing. You, you're trying to make sure that they have the position that they pick, that they start to develop a love for it so that they fully invest in it. So for me, I think that's the first, first and foremost, the most important thing. And then I think within the technical aspects, you've got to allow them to experiment. Uh, and by experiment, and that also means a lot of repetition uh, of, of working, on, working on them. But then, like as you alluded to, I think the biggest thing, to, biggest thing for coaches to, to make sure that they're aware of is, is that they get away from this picture-perfect idea of what a save looks like and how it should be made. Um, and, and making sure that uh, you're working towards that, yes, but that we don't get turned off from from from, from young goalkeepers, or we're we're trying to push too much or force something too much on them, just because it's not aesthetically pleasing. Like obviously, with goalkeepers, we have our like specific days that we go to goalkeeper training, and showing up and being present in those days is really like beneficial because you can just lock into your mindset. And it's not revolving around a team aspect. It's focused on your personalized training. And recently, like just like building up your strength, building up your fitness, it you can really see the change that it does to your game. And it's really motivating. Yeah, um, I mean, I can say the same thing. Goalie training helps a lot because you're working with, you know, old, or I mean, us being the older, setting a good example, um, I think helps motivate us. I know um, also working with younger kids, you know, um, seeing where they're at. Um, but I think that work, like one thing that I've done was being able to work, you know, at a training center for the U.S. national team, um, seeing like, but really great goalkeepers coming together and learning not only from, you know, the coaches there, but also um, the players there. You learn a lot to where, you know, you can set goals for yourself. Yeah. Um, so um, I think that it's important to like, like when you make a mistake, because like everyone makes mistakes when like in a game. And I think it's important to just like not think about it too much. And then um, I also think it's important to like, like you have to want to win every single time you're playing or else you're not going to like you're not going to develop as much so you need to you need to have like a will to win every time like even if it's in practice or a game it doesn't really matter as long as you're playing well i think you know apart from the standard sort of you know things you look for in terms of you know just athletic profile, good shots, like what you know, all the standard stuff is. I think this day and age is evolving a little bit. So these these goalkeepers have got to be really good with their feet. You know, they've got to they've, they've got to be willing to play. You know, under pressure, through pressure. Um, they've, they've got to want to be a part of the game. They've got to be involved in in the unit, right? 
but it, it's difficult from a, from a recruitment standpoint and, a, and an identification standpoint because sometimes you'll go and watch a game and the goalkeeper will be all over the place and heavily involved in save after save or loads of touches with their feet. And sometimes they won't, right? I think listening to, do they understand the game? Do they, are they, are they saying and doing the right things? Have they got a bit of presence? Have they got a little bit of poise in the game? Um, you know, and I think once once you get to that second or third look, right, you start to see, you know, are these kids, are, are they brave? Have they got a winning mentality? Are they just winners, right? Like, I think you can cultivate and you can bring that player on a little bit that's a, that's a winner, that's brave, that's willing to get better and better. So for me, I think the thing that stands out at the minute is, are they willing to play with their feet? Are they good with their feet? Um, do they check the boxes in terms of, you know, they can stop shots, they can come for crosses? They may not get them all right, but they show some some good signs of that stuff and they show some potential there. Um, but yeah, that mentality piece is a big one. It's, it's very hard sometimes to identify and evaluate and it's very hard to scout. But I think that's one of those things at the minute where, um, you know, we're having a lot of conversations with our recruitment department about, um, you know, can we can we find those kids that are, you know, have that growth mindset that are, that are winners, that are battlers, that are brave. When we talk about goalkeepers making mistake, it can be, it's not necessarily dropping a ball and it goes in the net. It can be basics of footwork, can't it? And positioning and coming for catches correctly and all the stuff that you've forgotten more about than I'll ever know as a goalkeeper. Um, so when goalkeepers, I talk to them and they'll say, oh, I give myself seven out of 10 for a game from a performance perspective. It's not necessarily that they've made a calamitous mistake it's just they've made subtle errors that only they and goalkeeping coaches will know about you know I work at AFC Bournemouth a day a week in the medical department there and if there is one section of the coaching staff that I really do work hard with it's with the goalkeeping coaches they're, they're two great go- goalkeeping coaches and and well, actually four great goalkeeping coaches up there in the senior team this first team and and We've got Aaron Ramsdale, who will probably be in England number one. We've got Mark Travers, who will probably be Ireland's number one. We're quite blessed. And I definitely think that my experience is they're super engaged with the psychological side, yet at the same time, they're awesome at the psychological side. And I think there's outfield players who at the moment are not awesome at the psychological side who need to improve the psychological side so the psychological side is more important to them as individuals so it's not so much it's not just position specific it's mainly individual specific we hope parents listen in on these episodes for their own development and ideas on how they can support and create their own best of the best experience and opportunities for their own kids throughout the episodes we'd ask people to pitch in on ways they felt parents have supported players in the past and ideas of how they can continue to do so moving forward with some brilliant do's and don'ts it's very very easy Louis, to stick a sign at your training field and go parents drop your kids off here we'll see you in 90 minutes your parents spend more time with those young people than we ever will. So we have to engage parents. Listen, as, a, as an adult, nobody wants to be educated unless the, the purposefully seeking that education path. Parenting, nobody wants to be educated on parenting. I, I'm a parent. I don't want educated on parenting. 
But if you engage me first, then through that engagement and ownership, when I'm informed and engaged, then I can start myself as a parent going, well, tell me more about that coaching methodology. Tell me more about that practice. I'd love to know why you did that. Or even feedback back to the coach. You know what? I, I watched your session the other week and now my son or my daughter has gone away and I've seen them do this in a game. That's fantastic. Thanks for highlighting it for me. It's about engagement. It's it's very easy to go parents, stay at the door and off you go. There's some pro clubs that still do that. There's some grassroots and recreational clubs that still do it. There's competitive clubs that do it. But we're missing a trick. We're absolutely missing a trick because we want those parents in the car ride home to be repeating the same things that we would ask for all of five minutes and then go back to being a parent, by the way. Um, but if they understand what we're trying to achieve and the journey that these young people are on, they can support that message. And the best youth soccer clubs in this country do that. Simple as that. I, I've, I've spoke to hundreds upon hundreds of clubs in this country, back in Europe, and the best clubs at any level engage the parents. Don't want the parents picking the team. Don't want the parents deciding who plays what position. That's for the specialists. That's for the coaches. But the parents know what we're trying to do, how we're trying to achieve the outcomes of the game, and how we are trying to make their son or daughter a better person. And that's all parents, really, for the most part. That's what we want. I'm a parent. That's all I want. Is my child happy? Is my child safe? Are they learning something? And what happens is, I think, that people who who are obviously paying for a service um, want the coach to be saying a lot, where what can actually be the best thing for the development of their son or daughter is that it's not the volume that the coach is saying, it's the quality. Um, and it's also encouraging uh, the, young, the young players to, to speak to each other and to take more responsibility. And I think that, you know, everybody who, who works with kids and has kids, you know, knows the, the roles that phones and social media and everything else has played in making kids a lot quieter than, than they were. They're, they're, you know, irrespective of the country, once, you know, the technology takes over, it's, it's very difficult for, for, them to, for them to be able to interact in the same way. And I think the role of a coach now can, can help that. And I think the more experience that you have as a coach, the quieter you are allowed to be. Um, and sometimes if, if parents are watching a training session and there's a new coach and that coach is quiet, they will perceive that that coach is not, is, is, isn't doing his job or, or she isn't doing her job. Whereas as long as they're making the choice to be quiet at the right moments in the session where the players need to solve their own problems, um, and uh, I think that that's that's good coaching. Okay, so I'd say first for I've I've done I've been working for Surf and we do like I do like trash pickup for the youth tournaments and just parents youth parents just need to let the kids play and not be a distraction towards them because it is ridiculous how much kids look at their parents during the game just to see if they're doing something right or because the parents are just nonstop screaming and they just got to let the kids play. That's the number one thing I'd say. I guess it's just like go out and for my parents, it's more just like 
go out and try your best and have fun. And, and we know you'll, we'll be, we'll be proud of you. And that's pretty much it. I get pretty much most of my tips from my coaches, but my parents help me more in the, like in the mental side of my game, I'd say. Brilliant. Diego. Yeah. So I think obviously a lot of games could escalate just because of the parents. And um, I, I mean, at points I've been in games where, the parents almost make it like the game just stops so much. It just it doesn't become fun anymore. I think at one point they just have to let go and just let their kids play. And obviously there's no better feeling than just, I mean, I don't know, just playing knowing that there's no other worry on the field that you're just playing and having fun. And I think something I've noticed is a lot of, I, I mean, I've seen personal experiences with like friends, people where their parents just, they, they just keep, they just like, they're relentless on their kids and they just keep just forcing them to do stuff that they don't want to do. And I've seen kids, some of my friends, some, some of my friends have just been driven out of soccer because their parents are just either they force them to like always play soccer or, but at, at one point you just have to realize that these kids play soccer because they like the sport and not always because they might want to be a pro or the best, but they just like having fun. And I think a big part is parents just need to let go and let their kids have fun on the field and not worry about the future just the present moment and the present game and the amount of fun that the kids should be having every time they step on that field sometimes we're when we're in like the finals of a tournament or something the parents yell a lot and it kind of like loses my focus and sometimes I start to panic when that happens mm -hmm. I think a good thing my parents have done is express when they're proud of me for something because a lot of the time like parents I don't really know how to say this but it's like when your parents say that they're proud of you for something like even if it's a small thing or if you like they were proud of me for smaller things too like even when I was younger if I did a new seal move that I've never done before like they praised that a lot and that encouraged me to do it even more and that not only helped my relationship with them as I went throughout my um, rest of my soccer career, but also just me as a player. I was like, okay, let me just do this skill more. Let me do this thing more, right? And then also, it's just, like, they just supported me a lot throughout my college process, which I think was another big thing. And the big thing that they emphasized is that it's my decision with, like, a lot of things with college. And they're like, don't let us influence your decisions like when it comes to anything like soccer related, even life related. And I think that was a big thing that helped me because it, it minimized the amount of pressure I had going throughout that process. And then I think one last thing that's really important is that they always say that we're not going to get mad at you if you make a mistake as long as you're trying your best. If you have a bad game, but you like worked your butt off during that game, like what can we really be mad at you about, right? Because you worked hard. It's just like you just have bad days sometimes. I think that's a big thing that a lot of parents, like especially in sports, need to realize is that the kids aren't going to have a good day, game every single time, but they always encourage me to just work hard. If I have a bad pass, like let me just make sure that I sprint back and make sure that I regain the ball as fast as I can, right? So I think that really helped me a lot because I knew that they weren't going to get mad at me if I just like didn't score a game or like did, had a bad shot or missed a PK because those are things that always happen. So they just always encourage that I work hard every single time that I step on the field. If you enjoyed the episode, please go to Apple Podcasts and search Inside Surf Soccer Podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review.